Well, good morning. As uh, others have said, thank you for joining our live stream this morning. We are glad that you were able to take part in our worship service together. Um, if you don't normally attend Bethel, or if you haven't been with us in a while, we're currently in a series uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon is located in chapters 5 to 7 of the Gospel of Matthew, and in it, Jesus speaks to his disciples and explains what it looks like to be a citizen of his kingdom. So today, we're looking at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 to 15. In this passage, Jesus teaches his disciples how not to pray, and also importantly, he teaches them how to pray. Now, what he doesn't do is give them a specific formula uh, a, a specific set of words that they must pray verbatim in order to be effective, although you can certainly pray the Lord's Prayer uh, verbatim with a sincere heart toward God. Instead, Jesus provides his disciples and us with a model for prayer. And in this model, he shows us what our priorities should be. He shows us how our hearts should be oriented as children of God, as disciples in his kingdom. Now, this may seem a little out of left field here, but hang with me for a moment. So yesterday, I learned something new about compasses. Those of you who are outdoorsy or hike or camp or just paid more attention in school than I did may already know this, um, but compasses, by default, point toward what's called magnetic north. That sounds good enough, but the problem with that is that the location of magnetic north changes, and so it's not a consistent means over time of finding your way. Because of that, when you use a compass to get around, you need to take, account, take into account the difference between magnetic north and true north. True north is the actual unchanging location of the north pole. Only then, only when you account for true north can you be confident that you are going in the right direction. So why the brief science and geography lesson? Because our hearts are like compasses that gravitate toward magnetic north. We're prone to wonder from God. We're prone at times to walk around life with our heads down, with blinders on, focused primarily on ourselves, on our wants, our problems, our needs, our fears, our hopes, our dreams, our desires, and the list goes on and on. This is true of us when things are good, and it's true of us when things are bad, like right now during the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's true of us every moment in between. Our hearts regularly, daily, need to be reminded of and reoriented toward true north. And that's what the Lord's Prayer does. It's a model prayer for us during plenty and pandemic that reorients our hearts, desires, and priorities in the right direction and helps us pray as we ought. The Lord's Prayer has a way of blowing the blinders from our eyes, and instead of our heads remaining down, it blows the blinders from our eyes and lifts our heads up. And it lifts our heads up toward God, our Father, in sincere prayer for His glory, His kingdom, His will. But wonderfully, it doesn't just do that. The Lord's Prayer also reminds us that God is our Father in heaven, our Father who cares about our daily, moment-by-moment -moment needs and invites us to humbly in faith take those needs to Him and trust Him to provide. So we need to hear Jesus' words this morning. We need to repent of our selfish, sinful prayers and receive the grace that Jesus offers Receive the grace that he offers us as we, by the power of the Spirit, embrace and wholeheartedly pray in line with the Lord's Prayer. So that said, let's go ahead and let's look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 to 8, 
and our first point, how not to pray. Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, earlier in Matthew 6, verse 5, Jesus tells his disciples to not be like the hypocrites who pray in order to be seen. Here, he tells them not to pray like the Gentiles who heap up empty phrases because they think they'll be heard for their many words. Now, the Greek word that's translated heap up empty phrases is really rare. It can signify something along the lines of babbling or speaking meaningless words. Combined with the word in this verse that's translated many words, it seems like what Jesus warns against here is the kind of prayer that goes on and on in length but lacks real meaning. But not only that, it's the kind of prayer that's not simply lengthy or repetitious, but is also rooted in the false belief that the longer a person prays, the more likely he or she is to be heard. Gentiles, in, in this verse here, referring to those who don't believe in or worship God, evidently prayed this way. They would at length call on their gods and repeat their requests, thinking that they would be heard if they prayed enough. An example of this could be found in 1 Kings chapter 18, where the prophet Elijah squares off against the prophets of Baal. They each prepare a sacrifice, and they call on their God to provide fire to burn it, agreeing that the true God would be the one who answers. And as the story goes, the prophets of Baal call on their God from morning until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there's no answer. There's nobody there. Elijah, on the other hand, prays to the one true God, and he answers right away and in spectacular fashion. So what does this have to do with us? Well, we may not be praying like the Gentiles did, but we certainly need to be watchful of the kind of prayer Jesus warns his disciples about. Here, here are just a few ways that we can be guilty of this. We can pray the same prayer mindlessly. Think about maybe mealtimes or bedtime not really thinking about what we're saying, but going through the motions, assuming that God hears us and will bless us. We can pray long, flowery, well-stated prayers, not sincerely communicating with God, but attempting to somehow impress Him and get His attention. We can pray even the Lord's Prayer and other passages from Scripture, creeds, liturgies, or prayer books— not really understanding, engaged with, or meaning what we're saying, but thinking that just because the words themselves are good or were prayed by godly people, God's going to hear us. He'll be obligated to hear and answer. Now, why does Jesus warn against praying like that? Well, I think he says it in verse 8. He says, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. God is so much better than our absent-minded, half-hearted, insincere, well-said but not truly meant, lengthy prayers make him out to be. We don't need to try to impress him. We don't need to twist his arm or manipulate him in order to get his attention. No, he is our good father who knows what we need before we even ask. He is our good Father who cares for His children and loves to give us good things. As John Stott says, quote, He, that's our Father, is neither ignorant so that we need to instruct Him, nor hesitant so that we need to persuade Him. Now, none of that means that we should not pray or are forbidden from praying long prayers. In fact, Jesus tells a parable in Luke uh, chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, in order to make the point that his disciples should pray and not lose heart. He commends persistence in prayer. 
this also doesn't mean that we can't pray repetitive prayers. After all, in Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus is, the gar is, is in the garden of Gethsemane before his death, he essentially prays the same prayer to the Father three times. Now instead, what this does mean is that we need to adjust to true north. We need to go to our Father sincerely, wholeheartedly, fully engaged in prayer, trusting that he cares for us and already knows our needs, but taking them to him anyway, not to impress him or twist his arm, but taking our requests to him because we love him, because we want to talk to him, because we want to know him, because we want to cast our cares and anxieties on him. Now, what does this kind of prayer look like? Well, that's what Jesus provides for us in verses 9 to 15, and that brings us to our second point, how to pray. So in verse 9, Jesus says, pray then like this. It's important to point out here that Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, but he's not necessarily giving them the exact words to say. Although again, you can wholeheartedly pray the Lord's Prayer word for word. Jonathan Pennington explains it like this. He says, the prayer is not the only prayer that a Christian can or should pray, but rather it is a model of what kind of petitions and God orientation should mark the Christian life. It is the scaffolding around the tower of prayer or the guiding handrails along which the disciple walks in forming his or her own prayers. So the Lord's Prayer is a model. But what does this model prayer include? Well, it's made up of six requests that here are broken up into two parts. The first three are in verses 9 to 10, and they concern God and His name, His kingdom, His will. The last three are in verses 10 to 13, and they concern our need for daily bread, our need for forgiveness, which Jesus further unpacks in verses 14 to 15, and also our need for faithfulness, our need to be kept from evil, from the evil one. We'll look at each of those requests, but before we do, notice a couple of things. First, Jesus begins this prayer with our Father in heaven. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we go too fast. We skip over portions that are familiar uh, or just seem like they may, might not be that important. But here, especially here, slow down and think about this. If you have trusted Jesus to save you from your sins, through faith in Christ, God has adopted you into his family. You were once a spiritual outcast a spiritual orphan. But God, by grace, through faith in Jesus, has welcomed you in. He has brought you in. And because that's true, you are now his child, and you have the privilege of knowing him as father. As the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 4, 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And we don't just address God as Father, as amazing as that is, but He is our Father who is in heaven. God is supreme over all creation. He is the sovereign King of the universe. He is transcendent and holy, high and above. But He's also near. He is our good, perfect, loving Father who not only cares about our needs, but he knows about them before we ask, and he's actually able to meet them. That's good news. And second here, notice that the requests in the Lord's Prayer concerning God come before the request concerning our needs. I think that's significant. It certainly does not mean that our needs are unimportant. Again, remember, God knows our needs, and here Jesus actually invites us, he tells us to pray for them. But what this does mean is that God and his name, his kingdom, his will should take priority in our hearts. Remember, the Lord's prayer reorients 
our hearts in the right direction. We are prone to gravitate toward our needs, our wants, selfishly. But what the Lord's Prayer does is it flips that on its head. God's will, God's name, God's kingdom becomes foremost. So what are these requests concerning God? Well, look at verses 9 to 10. Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There are three petitions here. The first is, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? Well, the word hallowed means to sanctify or to consider as holy. And God's name refers to God himself, to his character. Listen to how D.A. Carson explains this. He says, In the Semitic perspective, a person's name is closely related to what he is. Therefore, when God in the Old Testament reveals that he has this name or that, he is using his name to reveal himself as he is. The names are explanatory. They are revelatory. God's names include God the Most High, Almighty, I Am, and compounds of the last one, which might be translated, I Am who is our help. I Am who is our righteousness. And as we think of the character of God hidden behind these names, we are to pray, hallowed be your name. So when we pray like this, we are asking God to let his name be honored and supremely valued in all creation. We're praying that everyone, including ourselves, would chiefly value, glorify, praise, revere, and honor God. The second request is, your kingdom come. The Reformation Study Bible helpfully summarizes the kingdom of God like this. God's display of his sovereignty and the redemption of his people. The kingdom of God. God's display of sovereignty and the redemption of his people. Jesus already brought God's kingdom in part. In Matthew 4, 7, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Through his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection, Jesus rules and reigns in the hearts of everyone who has turned to him for salvation. But the kingdom hasn't fully, finally arrived. That's not going to happen until Jesus returns and reigns with his people forever in his kingdom. So until that day, we are to pray, let your kingdom come. And when we pray this prayer, we're praying that God would cause King Jesus to rule in our hearts as believers, as the church, more and more and more with each passing day. And we're praying and asking God to reign in the hearts of people who don't currently know Jesus, to reign in the hearts of people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The third request here is, your will be done. When we pray this prayer, we're asking that all people would joyfully follow God's commands. That what God desires would be accomplished in all the earth just as it is accomplished in heaven. That last phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, it can also apply, I think, to all three of these requests in a sense. Not just the last one. In heaven, God's name is rightly honored. In heaven, all submit to God's kingship. In heaven, God's will is perfectly realized. So when we pray these prayers, we're asking God to make what's true in heaven the reality here on earth and in our own hearts. Think about how these requests are radical ones, how they challenge us to repent and to reorient ourselves toward true north, toward God and his ways. I, I love here how John Stott puts this. He says, It is comparatively easy to repeat the words of the Lord's Prayer like a parrot, or indeed a heathen babbler. To pray them with sincerity, however, has revolutionary implications, for it expresses the priorities of a Christian. 
We are constantly under pressure to conform to the self-centeredness of secular culture. When that happens, we become concerned about our own little name, liking to see it embossed in our notepaper or hitting the headlines in the press and defending it when it is attacked. About our own little empire, bossing, influencing, and manipulating people to boost our ego. And about our own silly little will, always wanting our own way and getting upset when it is frustrated. But in the Christian counterculture, our top priority concern is not our name, kingdom, and will, but God's. Whether we can pray these petitions with integrity is a searching test of the reality and depth of our Christian profession. So the questions for us, I think, are, do we honor God as we should? Do we long to see his name hallowed in all the earth? Do we want God's kingdom to come more and more in our hearts, in our families, in our church, in our city, in Wilmington, in our world? Are we laboring and praying toward, toward this end? Do we want what God wants? Do we want to do his will and do his will with joy and see others do the same? Where the answer to those questions is no or not as I should or not as we should. Let's repent. Let's repent of our sin and selfishness, turn once again to Jesus in faith and ask God to change our hearts and align our priorities with his. And let's seek to sincerely, wholeheartedly go to the Father in prayer for these things. But not only these things, let's also be sure to go to the Father in prayer for our needs. Look with me at verses 11 to 13 here. Jesus says, Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Before we consider each one of those requests, first notice the pronouns that show up. Our daily bread. Our debts. Our debtors. Lead us. Deliver us. The prayer Jesus prescribes is corporate. When we go to our Father in prayer, we must not simply do so for ourselves, but for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. That runs against our individualistic culture. Disciples in Jesus' kingdom are not just concerned with their own needs. They are first concerned with God's glory and second concerned, yes, with their needs, but with the needs of others, with the needs of the whole. So again, let's repent. Let's pray for grace here. Let's ask the Lord to help us to get our eyes off of ourselves and to look toward the needs of others, all the while supremely prioritizing God's glory. And, you know, let's, let's break out our church directories and, and let's pray earnestly for each other. And what kinds of prayers should we pray? Well, Jesus mentions three. The first is for daily bread. Bread certainly means food, and it possibly even serves as an, as an allusion to Israel's time in the wilderness when they relied on God for daily provision of manna to eat in Exodus chapter 16. But bread here seems to symbolize all of our daily needs. And that's a key word, daily. When we pray this prayer, we are in a spirit of humility and faith, asking God to give us what we need to live as faithful kingdom citizens that day. We aren't asking for riches. We aren't asking for deep storehouses. We're asking for day-by-day provision. I think right now, in our moment, many of us perhaps feel that more than we ever have. 
in the midst of this pandemic, we may be fearful, wondering how this might affect the health, the security, the financial stability, the job status of not just ourselves, but our loved ones, people we know. You know, we, we're used to, especially in America, we're used to a, a measure of abundance here. Now, that's certainly not the case for all of us. There is poverty right here in our own city. There is poverty all across our country. But so many of us know and enjoy abundance. And so this cry for daily bread could, could, in, a sense, in, to, um, could in a sense, be lost on us. We might not really feel our need for it. But right now, I think perhaps many of us do. So that being the case, how gracious of God to give us this word today. Here, we are reminded that he is our Father in heaven who loves us, who cares for us, who knows our needs and is able to meet them and invites us to pray for them. So let's trust him. Let's let the Lord's prayer reorient our hearts away from fear and instead turn us toward loving our Father, God, who is sovereign over every molecule in this universe. Second, Jesus turns toward our need for forgiveness here. He says in verse 12, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This request has in mind the, the debt that we accumulate through our sin. We are all, every single one of us, without exception, sinners by nature and by choice. We have piled up an insurmountable, infinite debt toward God that must be paid. The good news of the gospel is that's what Jesus did for those who believe. He lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father on our behalf. And he went to the cross and he died for our sins and he paid the debt we owed, all of it, every single dime, every cent. He paid it off in full. And he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. So if you believe that good news, then we have the assurance that our debt has been paid in full. If you don't believe that good news. If you haven't yet turned from your sin and trusted Jesus to save you, let me urge you to do so. You know, if you would like to talk more about that, if, if you would like to talk about what it looks like to put your faith in Jesus, what it looks like to follow him, please reach out to me. You can find my email on our website. It's bbcde.org. It's for Bethel Baptist Church, D-E, Delaware, Org. You can find my email there. Email me. I would love to meet with you. I would love to talk with you more about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to know forgiveness, what it means to have the assurance that your debt has been cleared. So as Christians, if our debt is paid in full, why do we need to ask God to forgive us our debts? It's not because we can lose our salvation through our sin and we need yet again to come and ask for forgiveness so that we can be justified before God yet again. No, that's not it. We need to ask God to forgive us our debts because of what our sin does. Our sin as believers disrupts or hinders our relationship with our Father. We as Christians can grieve the Holy Spirit of God through our sin. And so we can't sincerely commune with him. We can't draw near to him with a heart of assurance and faith if we are clinging to our rebellion against him. Instead, we need to come to him. We need to confess our sin to him and receive mercy and grace and cleansing and forgiveness. And we need to do that daily, repeatedly. And this is what Jesus offers us. He invites us to do that. How crazy is that? That the Lord is so kind and patient and gracious toward us. 
that we can come to him with this every day, moment by moment. But that's not all in this verse. Notice what else Jesus says. So he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then he expounds on that, I think, in verses 14 and 15. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So is Jesus saying here that forgiveness, that salvation is conditional? That our salvation is contingent upon our extension of forgiveness to those who have wronged us? No. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Jesus says, or I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, including forgiving others, so that no one may boast. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So what Jesus is not saying here is that our justification before God, whether or not we are right before God, is gained or lost based on whether or not we forgive. But let's not water down the warning here, though, that Jesus provides in these verses. I think what can help us understand this better is a parable that Jesus gives in the 18th chapter of the book of Matthew. If you have a Bible with you or, or a Bible on your computer or phone, I would encourage you to, to turn here if you can. But in Matthew chapter 18, uh, starting in verse 21, we read this. Then Peter came up and said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So what's Jesus saying in Matthew 18? What is Jesus saying here in Matthew 6? verses 14, 15, and in verse 12. He's not saying that salvation is gained or lost by us forgiving those who have sinned against us, but he is, but he is giving a warning. He's saying that if, if you withhold forgiveness, if, if you refuse to extend forgiveness, then you have no confidence that you have actually in sincere, repenti in sincere repentance gone to God for forgiveness. So if you don't have forgiveness from God, you're not going to forgive others. But if you do know God's forgiveness, you will extend it to others. Now, we could qualify this a bit. Um, forgiveness um, there's, there's so much that we could say in this area. 
Um, one thing that I think is important to point out is, is something that is in Luke 17, verses 3 to 4. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So when we factor Luke 17 into account, it seems that uh, forgiveness and repentance are connected. Our forgiveness of others and their, and their being truly repentant are connected. Now again, there's so much that we could say here, and we don't have time to go into all of it today, but let's stop and let what Jesus is commanding, what he's commanding us to pray, and the warning that he's giving in Matthew 6, let's let it, let's let it sit with us. Let's not seek to water it down, or let's seek not to qualify it so much that it loses its intended effect. So what is Jesus saying? Those who have been forgiven, forgive. If you have been sinned against, and if someone comes to you in repentance, and you withhold forgiveness, you have no confidence that you have been forgiven. But instead, when someone comes to you, who has sinned against you in repentance and asks for forgiveness, we are to extend it. And how often are we to extend it? Seventy times seven. God has forgiven us an insurmountable debt. We are like the first guy in that parable in Matthew 18. We've been forgiven an insurmountable debt. And so when others sin against us, we need to not be like the guy in that parable in Matthew 18 who refuses to forgive, but we need to say, I have been forgiven much, therefore I forgive much. So in Jesus' kingdom, his disciples forgive when they have been wronged. Listen here, um, this is Jonathan Pennington. Uh, again on this. Um, he quotes a guy named uh, Adolf Sch uh, Schlatler. Um, so I I'll read the first part of that quote, and then Pennington speaks the rest of the way. So he says, As Adolf Schlatler observes, there is no serious prayer for forgiveness except on the lips of a forgiver. And then this is Pennington talking or writing. He says, This does not contradict justification by faith, but shows that a revenge-seeking heart is clearly not one that has believed in God's forgiveness of sins alone. So let's long to see repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation occur. Let's rejoice in it when it happens. And let's personally be quick to repent. And let's be quick to forgive the sincerely repentant. Then the last request that Jesus mentions here in the Lord's Prayer. He says in verse 13, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, there are, uh, th there's a number of uh, things that this verse could mean. There's a lot of ink spilt and what Jesus is getting at here. Um, one thing that I personally found helpful as I was preparing this week um, was in a commentary written by a guy named D.A. Carson. I hope this is helpful for you as it was for me. He points out um, uh, a, a figure of speech. Um, it, it's called a latotes, or latotes. I don't know exactly how you pronounce it, but he points out a figure of speech that expresses something by negating the contrary. So an example is this. There were not a few people present at the concert. Not a few there actually means there were a lot of people present at the concert. That's what that figure of speech does. And what D.A. Carson, uh, what, what he's suggesting is that that figure of speech is what Jesus is using here in Matthew 6, verse 13. So lead us not into temptation, what Jesus is getting at is, is that we need to be praying that, that God would, by his grace, by the power of his spirit, lead us in paths of righteousness. 
lead us not into temptation is the negative way to say it. The positive, the turnaround would be lead us in paths of righteousness. But this could also be, uh, um, this, this could also be playing on the, the difference between temptation and testing in Scripture. So in Scripture, God, he tempts no one. The Lord is not a tempter. Satan is a tempter. The Lord does, however, test his people in order to give proving ground for our faith. So the Lord does test us through trials and tribulations, but the Lord never tempts. He never puts things in our way to seek our downfall. That's what the devil does. And so what this verse here could be getting at is it could be saying, and lead us not into temptation, meaning do not allow us to enter into a time of testing that would, that would give us more than we can bear, that would result in, 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 in our sin. It could also be simply asking the Lord not to lead us into, into times of testing. We certainly shouldn't begrudge testing when the Lord brings it. We shouldn't begrudge the trials when they come. But we can certainly, with a sincere heart, ask the Lord to be spared from them. Remember, He is a loving Father who cares about our needs. So lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or there also may mean the evil one. What are we praying for when we pray this? We're praying that God, by His grace, through the power of His Spirit, would keep us faithful, that He would keep us on the straight and narrow path as kingdom citizens. It's also possible that this um, this request being placed in between verse 12 and verses 14 to 15 may have something to do, uh, as, as again D.A. Carson points out, it may have something to do with uh, the temptation to be bitter, the temptation to be bitter toward those who have wronged us. And so if that's the case, we're praying, God, keep me from uh, sin when I have been Wronged. Keep me from bitterness when I have been wronged. Lead me in paths of righteousness. Don't let me give in to the temptations of the devil. But in any case, verse 13, we're praying, we're asking our good heavenly Father to keep us faithful. And again, not just me, not just me, we're asking the Lord to keep his people faithful. Remember, this prayer is, is corporate. We want, to, we want the Lord to provide these things, not just for us, but for all of his people. So how do we put this together? How do we put these last three petitions together? Well, I think John Stott, again, to quote him, does it well. He says it like this. He says, A true understanding of the God we pray to as Heavenly Father and Great King although putting our personal needs into a secondary and subsidiary place will not eliminate them. To decline to mention them at all in prayer is as great an error as to allow them to dominate our prayers. For since God is our Father in heaven and loves us with a Father's love, He is concerned for the total welfare of His children and wants us to bring our needs trustingly to Him our need of food and of forgiveness and of deliverance from evil. God is our good, good Father in heaven. He wants us to take our needs to him in humility, trusting him to provide. So, what are we to do with all of this? What are we to do with the Lord's prayer? Well, I think if we're honest with ourselves, as we read through the Lord's Prayer, as we see, as we see how Jesus uh, wants the priorities of his kingdom, or as we see how Jesus wants his kingdom citizens to have their priorities aligned, I think we see how we don't fully measure up. We have prayed those insincere, mindless prayers. We have sought to manipulate God, going to him for only what he can give us. We haven't honored his name as we should. We haven't sought his kingdom as we ought. We haven't sought his will as we ought either. 
We haven't prayed for our daily bread, trusting him to provide. We're reluctant to come to him in repentance at times and, 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 and find it easy at times to maybe hold bitterness or a grudge towards someone else and even refuse to offer them uh, uh, forgiveness. We give in to temptation. We read through the Lord's Prayer, and if we're honest, there's so many ways that we just don't measure up. So what do we do? I think, again, we remember the good news of the gospel, and I think we have a perfect opportunity to do it here. As, as I was preparing this week, I, I, read, um, I read one article that compared the Lord's Prayer to Jesus's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, and, and I want to read this passage for you this morning. In Matthew 26, in verses 36 to 46, listen to Jesus Listen to Jesus pray. The text says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And this article, it, it references the Lord's Prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I, and I hope that you caught it as I read through uh, the, the parallels between what Jesus prays and what he commands his disciples to pray. Jesus is praying to his Father. Jesus is praying for his Father's will to be done while making his request known. And Jesus is telling his disciples to pray so that they wouldn't enter into temptation. And here's what this article says. It's written by a guy named Luke Stamps. Thus the Lord takes upon his own lips the prayer that he taught his disciples. He is the Son of God par excellence. Through agonizing prayer, Jesus' human will was perfectly conformed to the Father's will. Or, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, although he was a son, he learned obedience to what he suffered. Hebrews 5.8. But Jesus is more than a good example. He is also our representative. In Gethsemane, the disciples sleep while Jesus is praying their prayer. He alone watches and prays. He alone is wholly committed to the petition, Thy will be done. He alone is the obedient Son of the Father. Thus, Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane is a dramatic enactment of his representative work. Adam disobeyed in a garden of paradise. The last Adam obeyed in a garden of agony. Meanwhile, his disciples were sleeping in lieu of the eventual abandonment of Jesus. Just another reminder of the gospel. Jesus' obedience to the Father is the only hope for weak, disobedient, and treacherous people like us. Jesus is our true north. So let's look to him. Let's reorient our heart toward him and his ways, and let's pray in the way he commands. Having our heart's priority first and foremost, seeking God's uh, glory, seeking God's kingdom to come, God's will be done, but also in a humble faith expressing our needs to him, our need for daily bread.
our need for forgiveness and our need for faithfulness to be kept from evil. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you are our good Heavenly Father. Lord, we are grateful for the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Father, we are grateful for how uh, Jesus here teaches us how to pray and shows us what, what the heart of a disciple in his kingdom looks like. Father, I pray for, for those of us who know Jesus, who are trusting him, that you would more and more and more cause us to pray in line with the Lord's prayer with a sincere, whole heart. Lord, cause us to long for God's glory, long for God's kingdom to come, for his will be to be done. Cause us to, in humble, sincere faith, pour out our needs to him. Father, help us to pour out our needs to you, to, to, to ask you for forgiveness when we've sinned, to quickly forgive others when they have sinned against us. Cause us to, to flee temptation, to um, instead run to you over and over and over for grace to help us in time of need. Keep us faithful. Lord, we, we need you. We pray um, uh, in thankfulness for Christ and what he has done and what he continues to do for us. And Father, for those who may be listening this morning who don't know Jesus, who aren't trusting him, I pray that you would show them the good news today. I pray that they would hear what Jesus says and embrace the good news of the gospel with a whole heart. Embrace the fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he died so that we could be made right with you, so that we could be adopted into your family, so that we could be your children, so that we could know you as our Father in heaven. So Lord, we praise you this morning, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.